This is Fundraising Radio, and today's a guest speaker with Finn Upham, Managing Partner at Haymaker Capital. And in this episode, we'll talk about Haymaker Capital, what they invest in, what Finn's personal investment preferences are, but mainly we'll really focus on investing during coronavirus, which type of projects are more likely mm-hmm. to raise money, who can benefit of coronavirus in terms of fundraising, and how you should approach that problem during these uncertain times. So Finn, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Haymaker Capital. Great. Thank you so much, Constantine. Uh, Haymaker was founded in 2017 to do uh, two things. Uh, one, to uh, advise sovereign wealth funds and pension funds um, on, uh, on direct deals. And uh, that's sort of a, a global mandate for later stage opportunities, agnostic to, um, uh, to vertical. And secondly, to focus on uh, early stage fintech um, uh, globally, but mostly in the United States. Um, and uh, that sort of seed and uh, sort of seed and A as the main focuses. And uh, that was, uh, that's a, that though both of those are strategies like I uh, began earlier in my career uh, at Teal Capital, which is uh, Peter Teal's family office. Um, and I spent about a decade investing there in private investments um, with colleagues. And uh, before that, I was in uh, finance in New York City at Morgan Stanley and a few other places. And uh, had gotten my previous to that had gotten my PhD in applied economics um, and management science, um, as well as my MBA at the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business. Uh, I did my undergraduate at Harvard um, and uh, grew up in New York City. So that's me in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Okay, so eventually I got the venture role, Haymaker Capital, you know, advising the uh, pension funds, which is really interesting, by the way. But what do you invest in right now, and what stage do you invest in? So currently, I'm focused on early stage fintech, where I think the opportunities are best, um, and that's a largely a U.S. Uh, U.S. focus. And fintech is a pretty broad area. It um, it's uh, broadly understood to include uh, significant parts of real estate, technology investing, healthcare, the payment parts of healthcare, and then of course uh, more generically, uh, investing uh, platforms. Um, uh, private wealth management platforms, um, payment platforms, uh, lending platforms, and financial inclusion platforms would be sort of some of the other big sectors that people um, associate with the sector. Uh, I happen to do mostly United States um, based on my network. Um, and uh, I, I would say that that sector has been really strong. It was It's, a, it's sort of about mm, maybe about 16 billion a year in investments last year, and uh, probably globally about 35 billion. So it's a pretty significant sector. Nice, yeah, it is really big indeed. So um, first let's talk about, now let's shift to the coronavirus. So you're based in San Francisco, and my first question would be, how much have you shifted from you know local investing back before the coronavirus hit and now? So how much were you investing locally, so around San Francisco, California in general, and how much broader are you investing now when the coronavirus hit? Um, it's such an interesting question because in a way, in a way, um, the corona coronas turned a sort of multi-dimensional uh, sort of geography into a dual dimensional geography. So before coronavirus, there were all these different levels of, of, of intimacy you had with companies. You knew the founders personally. You knew someone who knew the founders. You uh, you could go meet the founders, right? And then lastly, you could never meet the founders, but you could talk to them on the phone. And now it's kind of like, you know them already or you don't know them already. And in, in a very weird way, that's um, that's been a an advantage, obviously, to those that are within the network. And I think, you know, anyone would tell you that they've 
that they have an easier time during Corona investing in reinvesting in companies they've already invested in, for example, than they would invest in new companies. Um, uh, and uh, at the same time, for those who are far, far away or just a little bit far away or even next door, it's kind of leveled the playing field because if you don't know the person, you can't meet them anyway. And so in, in a very strange way, I think it's created a more level playing field for people in dispersed geographies that you don't know already in a way that previously there was much more sort of a, of, of a tiered structure, uh, multi-tiered structure. Uh, for me personally, uh, I, guess I, I guess I would say I've invested mostly reinvested in existing companies I know or in companies where I know the founders. I have in some cases explored investing in new founders that I don't know, and have made one investment like that, but I think it's really hard to do, and um, I understand why VCs are struggling with it. I personally actually did not understand why VCs are struggling with that so much. Like, you basically look at the person's background, right? You don't. I just probably I'm just not as good in like reading people or something like that. <laughs> but basically, the personal meaning gives me literally nothing except for coffee, maybe or some food. <laughs> so I, I kind of miss that though. Uh, but let's move on and talk a little more broadly about fundraising field in general during coronavirus. What do you think is going on with it right now? Do you think uh, the number of uh, investments will go up again, or do you think VCs will stick up? With their um, and with their uh, existing portfolio companies until the end of the whole uh, crisis, basically. So, so strangely, the numbers don't. Um, are, these numbers would be counterintuitive, I think, to most listeners. Um, so, just as an example, in U.S. Uh, venture funding, we had uh, 4.12 billion in investments in Q4, which would be pre-coronavirus. 2.63 in Q1 2020, um, which would be sort of half coronavirus, half not. Um, and then 4.66, which to remind you guys is way above Q4, and in fact is a high for all quarterly amounts of invested in fintech. Now, that would suggest that fintech investing has gone up. When you dig in a little bit more, I think your intuition um, might that investing has become harder might be justified in certain areas. So, early stage fintechs taken a significant hit, going down from a a peak quarterly peak of 611 million down to 444 million. At the same time, uh, late stage investing, as you'd expect, has gone significantly up. So I think what's really happened is a shift over to later stage as people have become less um, able to meet people and build new relationships, I think, to our previous conversation. And those companies that are accelerating and doing well, able to say, I'm going to push the, put the pedal on the metal while everyone else is having trouble and really accelerate. So I would say COVID has had the effect of uh, further separating the winners from the losers. Um, and that is a really bad thing, I think, for a new, new entrance and for people with more complex strategies that aren't suited to COVID. Or, for example, if you had a, you know, I think challenger banks, for example, in fintech have had a really hard time recently, um, largely because they've had to change their focus on what was to some extent a vanity measure of customer growth to a more substantive measure of revenue, which I think is a, is a, re is a metric they weren't as focused on. And then marketplace fintech lending has been challenged as well, just because they're uh, obviously the underwriting has become more difficult and the defaults right, have gone up. Right, that's true. That's true. Actually, I'm planning to uh, interview one company really soon that's doing exactly that, the uh, you know market lending for students, uh, I mean, for college students specifically. So that one should be fun. But you're completely right here. And 
the early stage sector is heavily struggling. And as a person working at a venture studio investing in like idea stage companies, I really, I really feel that. So let's talk about those people who are struggling. Most of my listeners are early stage founders. So let's talk about them. What's your recommendation to them right now? What should they do? What? I'm sorry. Repeat the question, please. What should those early stage founders, you know, who took the most, the, the biggest hit from the coronavirus, what should they do? Uh, so, uh, someone I used to work for always used to say, the goal is not more startups, the goal is more good startups. Um, and so, uh, our goal is not to, for example, allocate more money to startups as a VC. Our goal as a VC is to allocate more money to startups that will win. And I think that there's a there is a, to some extent, a dangerous combination of too much funding and, uh, and, that, and that will lead to too much competition that leads to not as many successful startups. And you see this in any of the viciously competitive markets in the world where it's actually very hard to get ahead because there's too much, too much money going into acquiring customers, too much money going into uh, competing for scarce resources like engineers or real estate. And this is sort of the d dynamic we've seen in San Francisco and the US more generally. Uh, over the last couple of years as startup investing has heated up. So I actually think that right now is a great opportunity for really dedicated uh, entrepreneurs who are willing to take a long-term view on being entrepreneurs and have an idea which is really differentiated, really interesting, and have and, and ha they have a, and, and, and can sort of add value. And I think it's a really bad time for entrepreneurs who just wanted to jump in and be entrepreneurs, didn't have a strong idea, figured they'd raise enough money to acquire a ton of customers and sell sell quickly without great economics. And I don't mean to be flippant about that, but I actually think that um, I actually think that if you're a, an entrepreneur who has made who has who has made significant, thoughtful uh, sort of a thoughtful product with thoughtful team, uh, and you can raise a little bit of money, that's a pretty good time to be an entrepreneur right now. Right, that's true. Um, my recent, my most recent episode was actually about, you know, uh, most of your competitors are going to be dead soon. <laughs> so uh, that's absolutely true. Good point. But then I'll say this, Constantine, we haven't seen that so much so far. So like, uh, there have been, of course, failures, but you'd be surprised by the number of startups in, a, in my portfolio has 35 or so companies. And like, I think one has actually gone bankrupt so far during COVID. And right. so uh, without trivializing that, there's a lot of them are in trouble. There are a lot of them that are conserving cash. A lot of them are cutting burn. But you'd be surprised by that a relatively few have actually given up the ghost so far. Now, not zero. Yeah. A lot of people have been fired. A lot of companies have cut. A lot of companies may never come back. But I wonder how this turns out. And I wonder to what extent there'll be an actual decimation. That's actually a very interesting. Good point. I've seen tons and tons of companies, you know, saying like we're struggling heavily, but they're not. Still, they're still not dead, you know, they're surviving somehow through government support and all that. Yeah. I'm curious how many of them can actually come back later on once the coronavirus is over. But uh, let's talk about more early stage founders who don't, who don't really have a company to struggle with, but they want to have one. So mm -hmm. uh, someone who wants, who has an idea, who has some sort of traction and just wants to start fundraising, what's your advice to them? How should they approach this? Uh, so I think... Being an, I think if we think back to the 1970s and 80s and uh, even early 90s when a lot of the great companies uh, in, in technology were started, I think we forget how hard it was to be an entrepreneur, how it was weird, how it was, um, how it was dangerous, how you know, your parents would be disappointed in you if you said you were going to go start a tech company in, <laughs> in hippie San Francisco with all, you know, and, and, and they thought you were actually just going to go try to smoke a lot of marijuana. 
Um, <laughs> but in fact, you were passionate about technology and you super wanted to go do it and you gave up everything to go do it. And you were, it was this or it was that or death. And uh, I think, you know, when you hear stories of Elon Musk sleeping under his, uh, under his, under his desk, in his office desk, because he didn't have an apartment, overstaying his visa, I think, if I remember the stories correctly in the press. Uh, you know, when you think about like, you know, the early the early startup stories they seem a lot more dramatic you know amazon working off of a off of a desk than the modern startup stories where everyone has you know instant coffee and you know free massages and uh, in your beautiful office space and 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 all their parents yeah. tell them what geniuses they are for going to work for that latest startup <laughs> right so i i don't mean to trivialize it or make fun of it but i do think that there's been some real mistakes in spending and i think some of those have been the fault of entrepreneurs who spend simply too much and try to compete with google and amazon on perks and some of that has been uh, on the on the mistake of uh, structural mistakes of too many people who aren't entrepreneurs and who don't really want to be entrepreneurs going into technology and be so much structural expense around technology around um office space and employees and um and and, and, and sort of just generally competing for for talent uh, and so I think that like, if you're an early stage entrepreneur now, I expect it to be a lot harder, but I think the upside could be a lot bigger too, because I do think that like, to some extent, this will winnow out some of the people that didn't really want to do it and want to stay in their safe jobs and don't want to leave and take a risk. Um, and I, my advice to them would be that, you know, if you don't really believe in your product, if you don't really believe in your team, if you don't really believe in everything else, work on that stuff and get that right first. And then when you do believe in all, all, you know, the pieces of your company, there's there's no greater risk than not taking a risk, but taking stupid risks is a really bad idea too. Right, right, right. So my personal uh, you know, standard recommendation is for, for people who want to get into fundraising and who want to start raising money for their company is generally like grow your network first, like spend like a couple months actually actively networking and doing all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And right now, I'm not sure if I can give any good advice in terms of networking during the coronavirus. What's your recommendation on that? What would you recommend to those early stage founders who need to grow their network? Uh, much like Wittgenstein, I think that one of the major problems with having conversations um, is, is is a linguistic problem, not a uh, not an actual advice problem. So I'm going to throw the question back at you for a second and ask you, what do you mean by networking? Um, by networking, I mean like you know, getting some useful connections, getting to know someone who might introduce you to a VC, to an angel investor, or actually getting to know angel investors and actually starting to build those relationship. You know, showing how much you work and blah blah blah, all that stuff. So like, I think there's some value in that, but I think it's way lower than most people think. And I'll tell you that for two reasons. One, if all you're doing is trying to meet someone who will give you money, they don't want to meet you. Because like they have a hundred people try to they have a hundred people trying to meet them to give money and it's like nice to have a cocktail hour and be ringed by people who want to meet you for them but like they're not going to remember any of you and they'll take twenty business cards and you'll email them later and they'll barely look at your deck. <laughs> yep. So it's like it's like a weird thing because like it's logical to want to meet people because you think they'll help you but I also think that networking is really overrated and not networking and all forms of networking but the kind of networking that you described that is just going to meeting people. And I think the key here is like when you meet those, when you meet people, A, try to meet them through a, in a way that makes your relationship special or different, meet them through a friend, for example, meet them through common interests, I think are way better than just meeting them at explicitly network functions for tech and fundraising, because I think a lot of them, a lot of insubstantial people often go to those things on the investing side, not, not always. And B, I'd say that like when you do talk to them, don't talk to them about fundraising, talk to them about the things you're passionate about. And if they want to offer you money, I guarantee you they will.
And I think that like, I think that like building a relationship with them and getting to know them based on common interests in a genuine way is much more likely to lead to, to, uh, to support and investment. Um, and trying to meet them so that you can network with 100 people and manage those relationships while you fundraise and then dropping them all after you end fundraising, I think will not. Now, the first that I suggested might be a longer term route, but I think it'll, it'll result in more durable relationships, a better life, and potentially more money. Mm -hmm. And what's your recommendation on that? How can you turn into, I mean, how can you turn the I fundraising process? Think deeply about your think think deeply about your interests and think deeply about your passions. Think deeply about why you're doing what you're doing, whether it's professional or personal. I mean, for lack of a better example, if you have you know a, if you're if you want to be a biotech you know if you want to start a biotech company and you are deeply passionate about certain kinds of biotech, go you know do meetups around that subject and be really passionate about it and help people you know help to teach people more about biotech. And if those people happen to have money, they may they you know maybe maybe aim at the people that maybe have the ability to help you in the future, but try to do so in not a super instrumental way. Um, that is, I think people sense when you are trying to use them for something and that's fine in business contexts, but I don't think the early stage startup is so much business as it is personal. And so when you approach right. people like business, like I'm trying to get something from you, I think it's really hard to succeed. There's also the weird dynamic that a lot of founders are super are much younger and a lot of the people they want to get money from are substantively older, not always old, but like, you know, 10, 15, 20 years older. And it makes the, it makes the like, it makes like this networking even more awkward and asymmetric. <laughs> yeah, right. That's actually a good point. And the meetup advice, I think it's great. I've heard it multiple times and I guess it should be working. Yeah. So try that. Um, so let's move on and talk about another topic that uh, I, I get asked about a lot, which is alternative sources of capital. The deeper uh, we go into this recession, the less uh, early stage founders can get access to VC funding and angel funding the more they seek for alternative sources of capital. Can you recommend a couple that you personally like? That's a great question. I think a really important one. So to the earlier conversation we are having around uh, bootstrapping and having this, this environment being much tougher, I think that like, I think that VC is a is a really interesting and really substantive way to raise money, but it's a way, not the way. And so, uh, I think there's two approaches. If you want to be a consultant, you'd say it's it's the cost, the, the revenues, and the expenses, right? Uh, think of VC as one kind of revenue, but not the only kind of revenue. So there's been some right. new there's been some companies recently, for example, that will give you uh, that will that will that will actually um, lend you money against SaaS revenue uh, contracts you've made. So if you're a company, you know, basically uh, selling a SaaS product, you can actually pre you can actually sell the next two years or some function of the next two years of that revenue upfront and get that money immediately in the door to build more customers. And that's a, sort of a really interesting, that's sort of a really interesting um, way, to, way to sort of like accelerate growth without taking uh, dilutive capital. Um, and uh, that company's name um, is, uh, let me just find it here really quick. Uh, that company's name is Pipe. Uh, other, other ideas are like, you know, I think family offices are now considered basically VC, but other ideas are obviously um, bootstrapping you know, using your own savings, which I think people know. Um, I think other ways of doing that are taking uh, venture loans, which I think were really hard to get for an early stage founder. Um, other ways of doing that is, um, is even if you have, uh, if you have other assets that you can, uh, that you can actually borrow against, even startup assets. A lot of people were previously in a company where they have shares in that company, but it's private. Now there's companies like 137 Ventures, which will actually lend you money against your startup shares. But like long story short, the, 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 the best way to, 
to raise to 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 to, to raise VC and to, and to and to get money is also to cut your need for money because the less money you need, the less dilutive it'll be, and the less money you have to raise. And I think that the angle there is think deeply about how you're going to acquire customers. Because in my experience, a lot of the expenses you think of as structural, so like get cheap office space, hire people that are passionate, sell them on the passion, not on the money, hire, sell them on the shared vision, not on how much you're going to pay them. You don't need all the perks, I think now, especially with no offices and no meetings. Mm -hmm. But I think most importantly, customer acquisition, which is, I think the biggest expense for a lot of, especially FinTech, but in general companies was acquiring customers. And I just think that going forward with fundraising becoming more volatile and harder, the idea that you're gonna acquire customers in a conventional way is zero. So how do you acquire customers in different orthogonal ways might be a more important question than how do you fundraise in different more orthogonal ways? Although I think both are important questions because solving the need, the cost problem does solve the revenue problem, right? Right. Um, and so the on the on the customer acquisition side, I can give some very specific advice. So it's like uh, B2B is one way to do that. You know, partner with companies that already have customers and get them access will give them access to you. They will give you access to their customers. B uh, truly do a new product in it with to new customers where your product is truly needed and there'll be a virality to your customer acquisition. And this you see in a lot of financial inclusion plays in fintech. And on a related note, truly have a product that's six times better than anyone else's product so that people really, really love it. And the the un, unfortunate but necessary implication of a product that's six times better than any other product is that you start with a very, very small market size. And I think to generalize for a second, market size is one of the largest misunderstood pieces of being an entrepreneur. I think most people, when they walk in the door and pitch a VC, they pitch how large the market size is, what they call TAM, total adjustable market. And I think this is one of the big mistakes people make as startup founders to try to attack energy markets or grain markets or car markets mm -hmm. in general. And I think right. rather than that, a lot of the great entrepreneurs have started with little tiny small niche markets where their product is six times better and everyone's desperate for it because it's designed for them. They've actually interacted with those customers really closely and they've learned from those customers as they're launching their product in an iterative way. And they've actually improved in real time because they have a few customers that are loyal and that love it. They've been able to make mistakes and learn in real time improving that product and get great margins, huge market share and profitability even if only marginal profitability rather than operating profitability early on. And I think that when you think about the great companies, that's actually a lot, exactly what a lot of them did. When you think of Tesla starting with electric roadsters, which is not a, even a market before that, or you think of Google starting with academic PhD researchers, you know, Googling stuff. It was started in more academic markets or Facebook starting in uh, college campuses in one college campus, in fact. And so like a, a lot of these companies ironically started in micro niches where they were superior and therefore ob obviated the need for, uh, for, for initial, as much initial capital. And they were able to build as they served the needs of a small community that they felt really aligned with and that really needed their product. And I think the better answer of how to then how to fundraise is how do you need less money or how do you spend less money? But I think it's still important to raise a little bit. Right. That's actually great advice. And narrowing down your, um, you know, addressable market is great advice. And thanks for mentioning Pipe. I've never heard of them. And I'll make sure to include the link in the description of this episode. So if someone's in SaaS, maybe that's an option for you. So take a look at it. Uh, but we're moving on to the types of uh, companies that are more likely to raise money right now during the pandemic. So what kinds of businesses or what what startups in which fields are easier to raise money for? So 
I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you that I think there are some fields that are more likely to raise right now. Um, but I, but I, but I'm also going to reframe the question just a little bit and tell you what I think is, um, is, is like a, another version of that question. So I uh, look, I think that financial inclusion companies in fintech have a great opportunity to raise, but more generally, companies that serve those who are in need of uh, alternate solutions to problems that were ac accelerated or, uh, or, or made worse by the pandemic. Whether that's you know Zoom or that's a um, a lending product that you need because you need more money, or that's a um, you know or that's like a you know a, a media product because you're bored. Um, I think those companies that are play into the pandemic would be or are well positioned. But that's sort of obvious. I think B two B is a much always been and, and the higher up the larger the companies you serve, the more the more durable this time is for you because larger companies are still spending. Um, although on the on the SMB small and small S, uh, sort of the small business side, it's been very painful. And I think payment transfer companies in fintech, but more generally companies that do flows that aren't that affected by fintech, you know, food, um, you know, uh, internet speed, um, you know, clothing, uh, you know, all that kind of thing. They're like they're doing either well or badly depending on the exact space they're in. Certainly the sweatpants businesses are doing really well during COVID, although I assume the suit businesses are doing badly. Um, <laughs> uh, that, that said, that said, like, I think that another way of asking that question is like, how do you as an entrepreneur pivot your business and be creative about adjusting to the new reality? Because right. if you had an old reality that you were banking on and then you have a new reality and you don't change your business plan at all, guess what that sounds like? That sounds like all the incumbents that you're trying to beat. And that means you're just as inflexible and you're just as recalcitrant and you're just as and you're just as dinosaur-like as the guys you're trying to compete against. And maybe they're not even so dinosaur-like. Maybe you just think they are, by the way. I mean, there's great examples of existing companies that do pivot and do modernize. Um, that said, uh, let me let me let me say the uh, status quo and continuing on with the existing way things are is bad for is bad for uh, startups. I think it's really hard to compete with incumbents when nothing changes. And so they have all the advantages of scale. They have all the advantages of momentum. They have all the advantages of brand. They have all the advantages of having built a really big profitable business. And you have all the disadvantages. You're trying to compete with people who are well entrenched, who serve their customers. Okay, nothing's changing. And so you lose. And uh, maybe occasionally you win, but mostly you lose. And yet startups in a time of change, that's when their real advantage can come. Because as new needs are, are opened up, as new situations evolve, as new landscapes are created that old companies are not designed to build, they're going to have a lot harder time adjusting to those new realities than a startup is. A startup has none of the fixed costs. They have none of the entrenched um, customers. They have none of the old patterns and ways of doing things that have been built. They have much more entrepreneurial founders who are much more willing to pivot and be flexible. And frankly, they can see new opportunities and jump on them much more efficiently. And so I think the better question than what do you do when things change is it's going to be really hard and painful when things change, but this is probably the best opportunity you have of creating a new company than it was when things didn't change, but it felt like you could at least see the future more clearly. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to embrace change. You have to embrace instability. I think that startups, a lot of startups are going to emerge now that are really cool startups that address new needs. And um, I don't think it's good to just return to the way we were. I think the goal should be to return to a better place and to build better companies. Right. That's actually a great point that, you know, startups are famous for their ability to pivot like in a few days. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's great advice. And here on this positive note, you know, that founders are capable of profiting off this situation, I want to move on to the last question, which is a call to action. 
what's the one thing that you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? So uh, another former uh, uh, employer of mine once asked us for at least two days to think about their our 10-year plan and our 20-year plan. And what was so powerful about that question was that uh, when we thought about it, we realized that we and most other people don't really have 10-year plans or 20-year plans. Everyone has a six-month plan to fundraise and start a company. Everyone has a one-year plan to grow revenues. Everyone has a three-year plan to, I don't know, become big and then, you know, prepare for, you know, get more money at a five-year plan to IPO, but nobody has a 10-year or 20-year plan. And yet it's over the 10 and 20 years that really great companies are built and that you can actually make a plan where you say, I do want to create a great company or I do want to work at a startup or I do want to be really important in this area and have an impact. But I can't do that right now because I'm not prepared because everyone, if they could start a business right now, would do it. But we all know that those who start great businesses are in unique positions, have positioned themselves with the relationships, the um, knowledge, uh, the the partnerships um, and everything else to really to really get get off the ground running. I mean, they've learned the five languages they need to learn to deal with the companies that they need to deal with. They've learned the technology cold. They've built their relationships in the industry deeply based upon shared passions, not based on instrumentality. And so I'd say the 10-year plan might include spending years doing stuff that have nothing to do with the startup that make you awesome when you start the company. And so especially during COVID now, if starting a company right now is not possible, start your 10-year plan in your free time do the things that you might need when you want to start that company. If you want to start a company and you don't know the science, learn the science. If you want to start a company and you don't know the tech, learn the tech. If you want to start building relationships in truly thoughtful ways with people that share interests and passions with you around that subject, do that. And I guarantee you that in five years, you'll be way better positioned than anyone else would have been if you just done nothing and waited for the opportunity to emerge organically. And in 10 years, there'll be nobody who'll be able to compete with you ever. And so I guess my advice what you can do right now is the very simple advice of sitting down and writing down a 10-year plan and a 20-year plan and try to make sure that you have in that plan a situation where in 10 years or 20 years, no one can compete against you because you prepared yourself in a way that makes you truly perfectly suited to do the thing you want to do. That's a really positive attitude right there. And I like how you're saying like, it's a very simple task to write a 10 or 20 year plan. No, but... it's incredibly hard. What you'll, find is, what you'll find is you don't have, people don't have, people generally don't have them, which is exactly the point, which is why it'll differentiate you from everyone else. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I'm not big fan of long-term plan building, but that might work as well. Uh, try that approach. You know, I'm always saying like, try as many things as you can. You're going to eventually find the one that works for you. So thanks for that advice. And my personal advice is go in the description of the episode. I'll include some fun episodes there. I mean, fun, fun links, I guess. Uh, and I'll definitely include the link to Pipe. I took a look at their website. It looks really cool. So if you're in a SaaS, definitely take a look at them. That the company looks really great so we'll wrap it up here thanks a lot finn for coming up and for sharing your knowledge in the field i think it was a great episode really helpful for anyone who is trying to raise right now so thanks and have a great day totally my pleasure thank you so much